Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is Managing Editor James Kleiman to talk about inventory and how the industry is getting creative to find, build, develop, and create more housing. We may have just gotten back from Gathering of Eagles, but we're not done with events for 2023 yet. This October, we're headed right back to Austin, Texas for Housing Wire Annual, and we want to see you there. We've got a power-packed agenda with content such as our Women of Influence speakers, peak performer playbooks, CEO playbooks, and more to propel your company forward, as well as a bunch of networking events. Because this event is open to real estate executives, mortgage title, and everyone in between, you really have the opportunity to network with people from all across the housing ecosystem. If you want to learn more about the event, or if you're already ready to get registered, head over to housingwire.com on the events tab and you can learn all about it. Not to mention, if you're an HW Plus member, you're going to get 50% off your ticket. So get registered for HW Plus and get registered for the event so we can see you out in Austin. James, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, good to be back. Great to have you back. And I appreciate you uh, joining even when you have a sinus infection. Don't feel great. <laughs> You're in the full editor mode today, despite that, uh, even on a holiday week. So I always appreciate that. When you have young kids, you're always sick. That is so true. That is so true. They're just like germ factories. Yeah. Um, well, I wanted to talk about one of the things that has been dominating the news for the last you know, six months, but especially over the last month has been housing inventory. So we now get Altos research data, which tracks weekly housing inventory across the country. And so on our housing market tracker this week, um, we've, you know, we, we published the fact that we are now at negative year over year numbers and it's down like five times since this week last year, the number of uh, homes available for sale. So we're in this crazy environment and we had a uh, reporter, Bill Conroy, write a story about this, which was called The Hunt for Housing Inventory is in Full Safari Mode. And I thought it was a fantastic piece I would love to talk about. Yeah. I mean, I think you set it up pretty well, which is we've known for quite some time. Anyone who is an industry professional who deals with a marketplace like this doesn't need me to tell them that this is a really, really supply-constrained market. And as a result, uh, you got to get creative. You got to find really robust, reliable sources of business. And right now, that's really difficult if you specialize in single family for sale homes, uh, especially existing home sales. So uh, my recollection is the most recent Altos data had, I think it was 455,000 single family homes on the market as of Friday. And a year ago, around that time, it was about 459,000. And it's up a little bit from January, but yeah. It, that's not good. It's really, really bad. You want to see that number about more than double that, like at minimum double that. And so if you're a real estate agent, if you're a mortgage loan officer, and this is the marketplace that you're facing, what used to be your timeline for finding a client, getting them inside the house, maybe a couple months, six months, I think is like pretty normal. In a lot of markets, you got to find the house, you got to negotiate, 
you know, go back and forth on contingencies in certain areas of this country. When I talk to agents and LOs, they say, we talk years now. So I was chatting with a loan officer who's in the Boston area and she was griping (laughs) about the fact that if you don't have $1.25 million and are willing to say, okay, to whatever the seller asks for, you're not going to buy the house. And if you're an agent, you probably want to specialize either being the listing agent or being a really, really, really solid buy side agent and having a wealth of options available because your clients, I, I don't mean to like overly dramatize this, but they're going to war, you know, like they're still facing 30, 40, 50 buyers and a lot of them have all cash. And so you really have to have uh, a game plan. You have to have a strategy. You need to be looking at not just what your financial picture looks like today and maybe in a a couple months down the line, but a year from now, five years from now, how long are you going to have that house? If it's going to be less than five years, you might as well just rent. And it's not like anyone's being saved by the rental market either. Uh, a lot of the same conditions exist in rentals, uh, but it's just, it's so, so difficult. And so I think the major question has to be, okay, if we know that a huge swath of existing homeowners have very few incentives to sell, what would make them sell? Or alternatively, where else might we see supply? And so in this feature article that we published this morning, Bill really takes a look at Okay, let's see about new construction. Right now, they're about 30% of the market. Historically, they're closer to 10 to 15%. Are we at a cap? Can can they even go beyond the 30%? Uh, We're going to get a little bit more into that in a future article that's going to drop later this month. Um, But that's part of it. You know, the, the home builders are able to offer incentives that the mortgage companies today cannot offer. Uh, that existing home sellers will not offer. You know, if you have 20, 30 people knocking on your door, are you going to do seller financing? Absolutely not. You're never going to do that, right? And um, and that's really where you're seeing a lot of the supply in the market right now. However, it's really regionalized. There are no home builders uh, in, in large portions of this country. Like they do not exist unless they're specialized luxury home builders and they're building townhouses that start at a million dollars. And so then we take a look at some other factors. Okay, why don't we take a look at, let's say, maybe renovated flipped units. There are definitely some active flippers. It's a tough market. They're affected by interest rates. They're affected by supply chain issues. They're affected by labor issues, just like anybody else would be. Um, but there are definitely the margins. You can do it if you're disciplined, you buy smart, and you're able to get it pretty quickly because demand is still really, really strong in almost every market. I do think that they're also you know, um, affected by the tight lending environment, right? Tight credit environment. I mean, not everybody wants to to, to lend in that situation right now. And to your point, the interest rates, I thought one of the things that um, was really interesting about this article is that Bill did talk to some fix and flip investors and also um, lenders who who sort of specialize in that and kind of got their 
um, take on this. And the take is like, there's definitely things out there. The question is making it work for, you know, especially like when you think about um, distressed homes or homes that are in, in bad shape, right? The vacant homes that are across the country, um, we hardly ever talk about them unless we're in this sort of environment where it's like, we've got to have some inventory. But there's a reason for that. It's not like they're just sitting there like, oh, they're in this nice neighborhood. You know, I know there might be some, but basically there's a whole bunch of homes, millions of homes, and they might be in places you don't want to live. There's no opportunity to work. I mean, there's there's a lot of challenges there. Sure. I, I mean, if you're really... <laughs> hell-bent on finding a home to live in, you can go to literally the poorest county in West Virginia and you can buy a home for a couple dollars. Uh, But what are you going to buy? Are you going to have even reliable internet? Let's say you have that uh, ability to work from home and you want to be able to, you know, not be in the housing rat race. Sure, you could do it. uh, But there's not a lot of opportunity. There are a lot of social problems. There's a reason people aren't buying, uh, selling. There's nothing to sell. They're, they're, they don't have much value. Uh, basically, they'll give them away. And so, I mean, yeah, theoretically, <laughs> that contributes to uh, the availability of, of inventory, but it's not inventory that is desirable. And there's no money to be made there. There's no home builder who's going to build uh, something in, in you know certain areas of this country. Uh, one because it doesn't pencil out in really super luxury markets, uh, or because in really rural or uh, you know parts of Appalachia, parts of you know the South, parts of the Midwest, there's just there's no desire for people to live there. It reminds me of after you know after we had the housing crash and we had all that inventory. You did have people who like went into Detroit and different parts of Detroit, and by strategically buying different properties, you know, and you know, say two on the same block and then one over, you know, and really created a community whole cloth uh, by by having linked properties that they were fixing and flipping so that they're really improving a whole neighborhood, um, and you know, upping the value and also just. Uh, upping the desirability of people who want to live there. I thought it was a great strategy, it, but I mean, that takes somebody who um, has a, has some time and some money, right? That's not a quick uh, fix and flip. And it takes vision. It takes community, you know, it requires a lot of different stakeholders to buy in. In, in a lot of cases, it requires a competent government. It requires uh, a sense of safety, right? You know, and, and um, right. large portions of Detroit for many years, if you called the police, they wouldn't get to you. And, you know, we're not talking minutes, right? We're talking a much longer period of time. And many people will not take that kind of risk or perceived risk. And so you have to really want to do it. And you have to feel like you're going to have a community that can be, to some extent, kind of self-sustaining. And the average person doesn't live their life like that and wouldn't have the vision to be a part of a community like that. So yeah, stories like that exist. Uh, and I think it's very encouraging. And one of the biggest flip areas, and, and this has been the case for quite some time, is Detroit. Because there is still a vibrant art scene. There's still uh, jobs in the area. It's it's not what it was in you know 1952. But uh, Detroit is in some ways kind of a success story in, uh, you know, reimagining urbanism in the 21st century. But it's no one who lives there will tell you that it's a utopia and that it's uh, 
going to be the model for everyone else. So I, I think it would be great if, if we were able to have, a, I think, a, a strategy that puts together federal policies with local state policies that encourage people to repopulate, to use these areas. And, uh, you know, but in a lot of cases, like, you don't have sewage, you don't have running water, you don't have electricity. And like, okay, sure, you could be a homesteader. Maybe you're in handy enough to do that kind of thing. Um, but most people... They need a certain, uh, you know, de minimis of infrastructure to build a life. And it's just, it's, it's hard, requires a lot. One of the places that uh, people are finding ways to create housing is right that for that missing metal is like the ADUs or building on um, in, you know, in, in different parts of the country, you have a pretty big uh, lot size and a small house. You know, if you're built in the 50s, it's like, oh, you got that giant backyard. You got this little house. You can build a, another little house back there. And, you know, how's your grandma? How's your college students? Rent it out, whatever. And we see that, um, you know, you talked about federal and state policy. We've seen that be very effective in California when they overrode as a state, they overrode, you know, all the local ordinances are like, listen, yes, it's legal. And, you know, you can't make it too hard for people. We are still working out a lot of those details, but I mean, you are seeing some some interest there and some execution there. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of promise with ADUs, especially in urban areas that people want to live. People want to live in LA. I have friends, they're getting married in LA. It is beautiful. They have the best food, I think, anywhere in this country. It is a really vibrant, interesting place. Uh, there, there's a lot of positives you can put there. Housing is not a positive. Right. I, I Absolutely. If someone can find me uh, a house for under a million dollars in LA, I, I would love to see it um, and what condition it's in because it's, despite the progress made with ADUs, we still have a huge housing shortage in LA and they have all kinds of other crazy policies that, that don't go to the furtherance of, uh, you know, solving this housing crisis. And so ADUs have a lot of promise. I'm here in Brooklyn and we have a three unit uh, apartment building, two guys upstairs, one guy's a DJ, one guy's an art professor. And we have this big garage in the backyard, tiny little concrete backyard, and this huge garage. It should be converted into an ADU. It should support another one or two units. This is New York City. If, if you're not comfortable with density, you should move out, frankly. <laughs> uh, but that that is not an attitude that I think is necessarily yeah. commonplace. And um, ADUs despite being a success, I think, policy-wise. Um, if you can find that house under a million dollars, here's another fun challenge for you. Find a contractor who can do the ADU for under $300,000. Right. And who can do it in under a year. Uh, I mean, we, we still have all kinds of crazy rules and regulations. And um, it, it's just where we're so, so far from being able to actually construct at the rate we need to. And I think, you know, ADUs are great. They're, they don't really help our industry, right? I mean, they're, they're great for like housing some yeah. more people and which we want to house some more people. But if you're a lender, I mean, you're not, you're not in the ADU business. If you're a, a real estate no. agent, I mean, none of, none of that kind of housing is really what we're talking about. It's not the bread and butter for most agents, for the majority of agents or, or brokers. Yeah. I, I mean, I would like to see a place where policymakers and lenders are able to figure out a way to more easily uh, fold in ADU, uh, you know, equity. And there, there are programs, certainly, uh, and a lot of banks will uh, take a look at this 
Uh, but it's, it's not like you can go to Rocket and say, hey, <laughs> I want to finance this ADU that's on my property. No, I don't want to do like a full refi. I don't want to just, you know, they're, they're, it's too far um, for the lenders right now. But I, I think if we had better policies that recognize, hey, this is an achievable way for us to meet some of that missing middle. Uh, and there are ways to weigh it so that you prioritize. Maybe you are able to, uh, you know, forgive certain parts of the debt or make the costs lower if you do give it to a family member or, you know, it's occupied by someone from the neighborhood or there are ways to incentivize it. But I mean, we, we barely have a coherent housing policy, you know, in stage of let alone like getting into the nitty gritty of like accessory dwelling units. So uh, I'm probably too cynical on this, but I, I think we're, we're still quite a few years away. And, and here where I am in New York, the state legislature basically batted down a proposal to legalize ADUs. So um, it's, yeah, we're still in the infancy here. We are. I thought I thought Bill did a really good job of talking to, I mean, he talked to academics, he talked to tech people, he talked to, Fix and flip investors. He talked to um, people in the government to really go like, where where is the bright spot here? What what are people doing? And there and there were some. There were, but um, almost everybody in that story is like, you know, this is this is just this tiny piece of the pie that we're you know we're trying to do the best we can here. But to your point, it feels like there's this national crisis that nobody's really tackling. And we actually published an opinion uh, from Dave Stevens, who's you know longtime in- industry vet. From both, you know, he was on the agency side. He was uh, the uh, FHA commissioner. He led the uh, Mortgage Bankers Association. And he talked about how it should really be a priority for the Biden administration. And that we, you know, that whole idea of a housing czar, uh, which I know when I was in, you know, I mean, last time we had that maybe was Henry Cisneros, which is dating me. If you don't know who Henry Cisneros is, <laughs> but um, it's it's folks way in, back there because folks where in Texas we Texas probably know. <laughs> True, he, he he is from Texas, but he was a uh, HUD um, secretary too. And I, I think that the whole thing is like we have seen the Biden administration take some really focused stances on affor- on uh, fair housing, on appraisal bias. So it's not like um, you know there have been some administrations in my lifetime where you're like housing is just I mean it's nowhere on the agenda. You can't find it. It's not in the debates. It's not on the policy. It's nothing happens. That's not true of this administration, but. Housing, uh, you know, expanding housing is not really, I, I wouldn't say that's on the agenda. Yeah, I, I think they've kind of nibbled at the edges of it, uh, probably because they know there's, uh, it's hard to come up with a coherent policy that doesn't require congressional approval that will, uh, you know, without having to work through, say, like the FHFA or the FHA really radically change the paradigm that we currently exist in. So it, really means that you need to be a little bit more focused on which policies you could choose. Uh, and so to that point, uh, Bill spoke to Lawrence Yoon of the National Association of Realtors. He's their chief economist. And he said, okay, if we do want to increase supply, here is one way to do it. And it's very simple. Forgive some of the capital gains. If you're, say, a fix and flip builder, uh, you know, rehabber, and you sell it to a first-time homeowner simple, right? That I, I can't imagine there would be a huge amount of objection to that, but you never know in this uh, crazy, 
crazy place we live in. Uh, I, I think that's really smart. It often just comes down to financial incentives. And, and then the other is just, we've built this culture of bureaucracy and we have so much red tape. I was reading a story yesterday uh, on the New York Times about uh, converting office buildings into apartments. And friends and family often ask me, uh, why don't we just take some of these big office buildings in New York or San Francisco or wherever and convert them into housing. It should be so simple. It's not one for starters, just uh, there are very few developers who are able to do that kind of work. It is complicated engineering. It is not easy. The second big thing is the floor plates. So the physical size of the building and uh, kind of the orientation and where the elevators go and the stairwells and all of, you know, what you've already constructed to make this an office building functions as an office space that doesn't work for a residential building. There are only so many window units, right? Because most of an office doesn't actually have windows. Uh, and, and so you have all of these construction engineering issues, but then you also have this incredibly difficult uh, series of regulations and codes. And so take a look at New York's original 1916 zoning code. It was 14 pages. That same zoning code today is 3,500 pages. And the New York Times quotes a developer in New York named Phil Warden. And he says, I have a name for the buildup of that stuff. I call it Kludge. And I think it underscores just how challenging it is for us to make any headway on even what should be a sensible, okay, we're living in a new era now. Remote work is here to stay. We don't have as much demand for these office buildings. We have this massive housing crisis. But in much of New York, the office building capital of America, we can only convert buildings from that were built, I think it was like pre-1977. Wow. And so if the building in 1978, you can't do it. <laughs> and that's because... And we're not talking like architectural marvels because that's that's the year they decided. Uh, that was the cutoff, you know, and the, there was a proposal to change it, but it, you know, never went through. And then you have these cottage industries of consultants and people who kind of glom onto these issues and they get paid every step of the way. And, you know, New York has like famously the most expensive infrastructure projects on earth, you know, like to get anybody to do anything in the New York subway, it costs a billion dollars, right? So we, we've just, created this uh, this really difficult culture where we can't build anything. And, and if we do, we can't build it in, in a cost-effective manner. And, and it it touches everything across housing, across real estate. It really does. Um, so, you know, I follow a ton of developers. And one of the things that, you know, is very um, detrimental to building single-family housing or even multi-family housing, any, any housing, is the parking requirements. So, you know, if you have to have yeah. a physical, you know, if you have to have two parking places for uh, a, a unit that can hold or a house that can hold um, two people. So the house might be tiny. Our, now you got to have like uh, two parking places for this for this small house. you got to have it. It's one of the things that really um, keeps development off of things. If, you know, just we could think of the myriad number of, of local uh, laws and regulations that make it so difficult to build. And, um, you know, I, I think that maybe this is the, you know, who do we have that has the um, political backbone and the political currency 
to step up and say, we're going to address this from a national level. I mean, it's hard to get anything passed. I mean, we barely got the, the budget passed. I know that's always a, a political football, but it's, it's discouraging to be in this time where you feel like there isn't that sort of national leadership possible, not because we don't have people who maybe really care about it, but because we're in a pretty polarized situation, um, you know, and different parts of government don't want to work with other parts of government. And, you know, you could, you could feel like housing could be the great you know, uniter. It's the American dream, but it really doesn't work like no. that. No, it doesn't. And, and so just getting back to kind of the, the initial question, if we agree with the synopsis that people with mortgage rates at 3% are selling, we're, one, will we get any more inventory? Two, uh, if so, where would it come from? Uh, I, I think the answer to that question is there are there's a lot of encouraging data that the home builders are taking advantage of the situation that they have very little competition now and that they can charge, you know, pretty solid prices. And, and even if they have to uh, do a rate buy down or provide, you know, upgraded finishes on a kitchen, they will absolutely have demand in the markets that they're trying to build housing. So I think that's really encouraging. They're at 30% right now. We're going to be speaking with experts, analysts, home builders in the next couple of weeks to get a better sense of where that capacity really is. Could they build 35%? Could they build 40%? Could they be 50% of the market? I, I don't know yet. Um, I, I think probably with the supply chain issues and, you know, they, they have to buy the land, right? It, it's quite a process uh, from the, the home builder deciding to purchase something, land, and then actually get somebody in the door, right? Um, but that, that could be a really, really strong area of growth in this country, but that will only touch areas in which home builders are incentivized to build. And you're not going to find home builders in suburban Boston. You're not going to find them outside New York City. Uh, you know, you're going to find big multifamily developments. And in a lot of cases, those are apartments. Nobody's stupid enough to build condos. So that's not happening. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's a challenging market. And then I think the other factor is there's this idea about the, the Airbnb, uh, <laughs> you know, crash coming. That's not going to happen. Uh, I know Logan talked about that last week with you. Uh, but that's, uh, unless we have interest rates that really shock uh, the system and travel collapses you're not going to find a million Airbnb units for sale. So this is probably the market that we're going to have for the foreseeable future. And you you did a deep dive on that this week where uh, for your data digest for the news that are in for the um, article that, you know, reached out to people to really find out what were the, what was the true story. Because, of course, we had that viral treat, tweet that everyone was like, oh, my gosh, you know, people are revenues are down 50 percent in some cities and everyone's going to sell. And we're going to have this rush of inventory. And I'm, you know. Listen, we would love to have a rush of inventory, but it doesn't really work like that. So so tell us why it doesn't work like that. So it, it doesn't work like that because one, I think the data is pretty questionable. I, I talked to Jamie Lane, who's essentially the head of uh, data and research at AirDNA, which tracks uh, Airbnb pricing and, and occupancy and uh, various other metrics and he looked at that viral tweet and ran an analysis on the same marketplaces, same conditions, and his data was quite a bit different. And, you know, on average, we're talking like a 3% correction, not 
30, 40, 50%. The market that saw the biggest drop in revenue was New Orleans. And I think that checks out. Um, you know, there were a couple others that are in there, Austin, Phoenix, also dropping, but they're not dropping 30, 40, 50%. And I think most of the operators, one, could take a correction of three to five to 10% and still continue to run these as profitable businesses. But two, uh, just as important is about 20% of Airbnbs are extended stays. They're 30 days or longer. So chances are those would not be homes that would be for sale listings. Another factor is, of course, that in a lot of cases, these are just private rooms. These are not entire homes. These aren't even, they might be a couch. They might be a tent. They might right. be a yurt. They might be a, I mean, sure. tree house. I mean, they're not all at all like here's an entire house. Yeah. And so I, I just, it doesn't really compute. You know, like the numbers don't really wash. If, like I said, there's a huge travel crash another pandemic hits uh, and and maybe that's going to wipe out some, some people who are doing this and they'll want to sell. But I think more likely what we're going to see is if rates hold at six, 7%, this is just a general statement that will induce more sales. There are just going to be some people who can't hold on at six, right. 7%. They lose a job, you know, they relocate, whatever they sell. And, and that's that maybe they return to be, renters, but, um, you know, we're, we're not going to see there, there is no single under current conditions, single place. We're going to see a big shock of inventory. It's going to look like this for a while. I think. I agree. Well, James, thanks for uh, coming on, sharing the insights from um, your newsroom, you know, digging into these different things, because we know this is the pain point along with mortgage rates. They're, they're tied together for our industry, whether, you know, your entitled appraisal, Real estate, mortgage, this is the pain point. So thanks for coming on and guiding us through it. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show or leave a comment. We'll see you back here on Monday for more news and insight.